Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Orlin Bishop and host Michael Lerner, titled The Seventh Shrine, A Spiritual Biography Continued. This is part three of a four-part series. Orlin, welcome back. Michael, thank you. I am deeply aware that in addition to these conversations, there's an extraordinary experience taking place among you. Um, And I'd love to harvest that at the beginning of the conversation uh, and also ask a couple of people uh, some specific questions. But Oren, I understand last night was a very deep sharing. Could you say a little bit about your experience of the retreat as a whole and what what is happening energetically? I think with this, um, the last, well, yesterday and last night, and maybe it started Friday night, was that I'm noticing a shift in how I see the world. So the point of view of what the world is and how it moves and how it evolves is starting to shift. And the conversation um, guided by some of the the few things that I grasp from what Orlin was talking about are starting to eliminate new possibilities, both for myself, but I also feel for this community. And I feel this land and Commonweal are looking at new ways of engaging in the world. And one of the questions that has come up for me is in this understanding of remembering and regenerating, um, as well as with the idea of how light and love is in the space between us. And the idea of how the next shrine, the shrine of faith, is becoming a guide. What does that mean for a place like this? You know, what is our calling within that space? And in conversations I've had with others, I'm starting to see this percolation of how this gets integrated. So one of the questions that um, was given to me by Adam was how do you consciously integrate what you have learned from reading and talking to Orlin over the years? And I shared that with a group yesterday. And I think that a lot of us are asking, this is not only a spiritual and philosophical experience that's happening at the theoretical level, but also how does this get integrated into one's calling, into one's daily life. So as we're starting to understand that, I'm noticing a shift in how we hold each other. And this is such a blessing to have so many people from, actually, everybody is engaged in Commonweal in one way or the other. Through a program, through board, through staff, and kind of seeing this shift in consciousness that we're experiencing together, I'm looking forward to see how this ripples out. Thank you. Victoria, you have worked closely with Orland in many ways and also with the broader issues that you and Orland and so many others in the community are exploring. Uh, what is your reflection on um, uh, the retreat so far and the context, uh, both of the retreat conversations and the conversations we're having up here with Orland? Um, in conversation with um, some folks we were thinking and reflecting about not only um, 
what we're learning from Orlin and from you, but also what is it that we're bringing? You know, how is it that we're supporting this container? Um, so that's one question that has arisen for us, some of us. Um, the other piece is just um, the thread of grief that has showed that showed up last night, but that have been with us that was brought in, and um, and how grieving. Um, what, who, what we lost, who we lost, the transitions is also important um, for feeding the ancestors. And um, and the other piece is what was said last night about when we meet and an angel is formed, I see that forming within this group and within this body extending further out into the common wheel ecosystem. So those are some of my reflections. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Angela, you have uh, meditated in a circle with Arland for many years, worked with him in many ways. Um, what are your reflections on um, the retreat and what you're experiencing? I'm going to be very brief and then hand off to Tutu because he had a lot of reaction to what happened yesterday. But let me just say that it's, you know, it's never in the conversation, actually, the, the essence of the experience of being um, with another who has entered spaces that we know exist, but we don't know. So, for example, I'll just give you concrete examples. We have this black API healing circle. It was begun right after George Floyd's murder. And we meet every other Tuesday for 90 minutes, and we never talk about race. <laughs> but everyone in that space is black or API. And we talk about all of the things that happen in life that challenge us spiritually, physically, financially, psychologically. Um, and we have never met, and it, it feels so intimate. Orlin says he comes to this circle for his own nourishment because his days and nights and are filled. But this is a space, right? When we meet on our own, really we don't talk about anything. <laughs> we just walk the, the ocean. I mean, we talk, but it's sort of talk that isn't about anything, really. We're just perhaps making that space where... An angel can be born over and over and over again with every step that we take. And then sometimes magic happens, as in the time we ran into Samir, right? So very, very interesting phenomenon, this, this thing that is in our unconscious, which we cannot access with our conscious minds, right? So Tutu, I just want to hand off to you because you, you had some strong feelings after yesterday. But brief. Okay. <laughs> I'm trembling. <laughs> um, I think yesterday I was able to really glide into a very deep channel of time and space, which uh, guided by Michael, you know. And 
when you guide it so masterfully, it's amazing. I feel like I was tripping, you know. <laughs> I was tripping here. It was like, wow. Of course, in a normal time, when my mind was not there, I have no clue what's, what Orin was saying. I always feel like it's very abstract, very surreal. What's he talking about, you know? But I think that yesterday was the first time I really able to really take away all my unnecessary judgment of value upon what Orlin's about, which is very similar. I visited him a few years ago to his home, and we were chatting, and there was a sunset-like, was casting his face, and I was moved to capture that. And then when I went home, I meditated 45 minutes, and we just finished that portrait. Didn't stop. It began within. And I thought that was some kind of original power, a shamanistic power was translated to me as another channel to manifest that, you know. So I thought, wow. But I, I didn't get it. I didn't understand why that happened, right? So, But yesterday, two of your conversation and all the ho holding energy here, you brought in all this amazing energy, was communicated without saying anything, right? So moving some with dialogue or not. But ultimately, you know, was pretty amazing. I was, it made me really feel joy and blissfulness. Sean, your reflection? I don't ever like to disagree with you, but I think you are here with us, totally. Thank you. And that was felt last night. All the love Thank you. that's flowing here. Uh, you're sourcing, Michael. Amen, John. Michael, Orland. Um, when you called on me yesterday, I was just saying this to Kira and Arlene. I was here paying attention, but also in a kind of altered state, right? A natural way of receiving deep and profound information as well as ancient memory that wells up uh, in certainly some of us, if not all of us to a degree. So the experience of the group and of you, Michael, and you, Orland, of course, becomes for me a kind of alchemical vessel that we are all in together. That's an easy metaphor poetically, but it's also a, a true physiological somatic embodied experience that has effects on all of us. And the only reason I say that, because I think we all know this to a degree, is that we, I, feel this. And it causes both transcendent gratitude and epiphanies and also the wells of grief, Victoria, you referenced, and what happened last night. So I'm just wanting to deeply appreciate kind of openness in this collective group to receive the enormity of all we are receiving from you, Orland and Michael, 
and to acknowledge the deep tenderness within and amongst us. And again, that's a luminous tenderness and also can make us very vulnerable, feel very vulnerable. So I just woke up wanting to wrap my arms around the whole group mm-hmm. and stay right there for the remainder and then tend to ourselves after the retreat. And before we move into action, as Oren so beautifully described, the inspiration coming, we really tend to the heart and ourselves and our bodies. And I think for myself, I'll just say, I don't think I'll ever forget this gathering and these people. And it's not over yet. So deep gratitude and blessings. Others? Well, I'm going to ask my sister, Lisa Sims Booth, who's had the courage to lead Smith Center for Healing and the Arts, uh, which was founded by Barbara Smith Coleman and is uh, dear and beloved to our hearts in Washington, D.C., and led Smith Center through COVID and um, is such a core partner on the Commonweal Board uh, and makes these journeys out here to be with us, both on Whidbey and here, and is such a deep spirit. What are your experiences? I echo what others have said, and what keeps coming to me since I've been here and throughout last night and this morning is love. You know, love is the core of what I think Orlin has been talking about. Love is the powerful next step um, that we all need to tap into. And I think our world is lacking in that very much right now. And so I think we've tapped into something this weekend um, that may show a way. We've already been practicing that and all the work that we do, the cancer help program, the work that we do at the Smith Center, all we extend to people in need is love and community. And I think that this circle this weekend just has shown me like that deep power. I just looked at the message on my teacup, you know, that, the yogi tea, and it was about love. Mm-hmm. And this morning, you know, the song that we sang last night ended about the power of love. This morning I was singing a song about love. And so something deeply has tapped into me this weekend about the power of love and how we translate that. And so that's what's sitting on my heart this morning. Lisa, before you hand over the microphone, uh, I'd like to ask you, uh, from time to time you gift us with songs of spirit. I'd like to ask you if you would offer us the invocation song for this morning, and then we'll go into the conversation with Arlen. Sing the song that's on my heart this morning, not the song that was on my heart yesterday. Love, prepare me to be a sanctuary, kind and gentle, tried and true, and with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary. For you, love, prepare me to be a sanctuary, kind and gentle, tried and 
quiet for a moment. Peace. Peace. Orlando, as you listen to this harvesting of just a few of the experiences of the retreat, what are your experiences of How many more people are here? How many more people are here? How expansive the space is between us? how far grief has come to restore the faith in being human in a time when so much loss could happen, where understanding is not about the mind, but the will that could be altered by trust. That is really a critical step for the superconscious, where we could unite with the beingness of our humanity, where the subtle world could slip in to the everyday world at breakfast or lunch or dinner and change the relatedness of all of our heart and soul conscious spaces. Yeah. I, I keep experiencing a shift Think something and then something else reveal itself. But the level of generosity, the level of availability of the heart is awesome. Where people are giving themselves that something more could be shared. That's the experience I'm having. Outside of culture, it's a little bit outside of culture, as we know it. You spoke of, well, let me start by saying, I am with the community, mm -hmm. Sean, as yeah. you said, very deeply. And in order to do what I'm doing with Orland, I've simply needed this quiet, um, but I feel the experience, and I'm so grateful to hear it reflected. Um, I'm quite certain that each of you could have spoken of what's happening for you. Um, I want to come back to this point that you made of how many are here. And I intuit that you are speaking of spirits who are supporting and being with us in, in this gathering. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. I also have that experience here. Um, and over the years, my dead have come to me with increasing frequency and a growing clarity that this is not just in my imagination that it's they're actually coming to me um, I think it started probably 20 years ago the first person was uh, 
an extraordinary professor I had at Yale, Harold Laswell, very great polymath. Um, and um, I was literally climbing the steps at Commonweal one day, I hadn't seen him for years, and this very vivid image of him came to my mind just in front of me. And I had no idea what it was about. And then I flew to New York the next day and a friend greeted me and said, did you hear how Laswell died? And there's a memorial for him at Yale. So I went up for the memorial. Um, and that was the first, uh, the first experience because I was agnostic as to whether the soul survives death. I mean, I thought perhaps it did, perhaps it didn't, but I was agnostic about it. And then over the years, there were more and more experiences of that. And by now, my dead are quite accessible to me. Not all of them, but many of them are quite accessible. Some come in dreams, but some also are simply present. I can, I can call them up. And usually we're not speaking in words. It's simply a sense of presence. Yes. Uh, it's rarely words. Actually, once in a dream, my father, who absolutely did not believe in life after death, and I was called to go to a hotel on some street in Paris, and I walk in, there's my father sitting in an armchair in the, in the, uh, in the sort of uh, opening area, open area, with his pad and making notes. He was a political philosopher. And he said to me, I'm here to tell you that the other side is real. You know? So I've had many experiences of this, that, experiences that could be checked. Yes. Uh, I was up on Whidbey Island where my friend Shoto Harada Roshi and his fellow monk Chisan had started a center that I'd helped them start. And uh, Roshi invited me to stay in his little um, uh, little house, which was an honor. And so I would meditate morning and evening in front of his altar. And one evening I was sitting in front of the altar and I saw one of the alumni of the Cancer Help Program waving to me. And I thought, oh, that's nice. Perhaps she has passed and she wants me to let, let me know that she's okay. Because I sometimes ask alumni, if you pass and if you're able to tell me to come back, I, I would love to hear from you if that's something that you can do. And so I, th so I thanked her and uh, went to sleep. And the next morning, she was there. But this time, it's she was going like this. And I thought, well... She clearly is trying to communicate something. So I went, turned on my computer, and I, uh, I went to our Cancer Health Program list, and I realized that today was the day of her memorial service. Mm -hmm. And so clearly she wanted me to let the other alumni and her family know of this experience. So I sent a note to the alumni list saying, Make of this what you will, but, you know, I just heard from our beloved friend here. So there are, there are yes. checkable, it's not only, yes. there are checkable 
uh, experiences. So I went from being totally agnostic, sort of 50-50, to 60-40, 70-30, 80-20, 90-10, 95-5. And I'm probably at about 95-5 right now simply because I like to keep the possibility that it's all in my head, right? But it doesn't feel like it's in my head. It's my experience. So with that brief introduction of my own experience, is it possible for you to describe, since you have uh, great access in these realms, what is your experience? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, as a child, I had to go to school by bus for a part of the time, and the bus will drive through a cemetery. So twice a day, I would be driven through this cemetery as a child. And it altered my mind every time, every day. Because it was a space that had so much presence of those who had crossed over and whose memory is engaged with in these tombs. Many times, uh, you know, I come into the awareness that they needed more attention. And um, it was my deepest interest to listen in those few moments if I could hear anything as the bus drove through the cemetery. I didn't know it, it was a calling that they actually prepared me to understand the most complex things about our world. And uh, the story of Lazar that's in the book was far more complex than what I wrote about it. Because I did not write about what I experienced as he transitioned over to the other side, in which I followed with my mind, my awareness. And we have dialogue on the other side of things. And one time I asked him, um, tell me more about what's happening. And he said, no, I don't want to talk about it. Because there's a certain um, honesty in their communication. They want us to be so true to ourselves. And if we're not, they don't communicate anything. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Orlin Bishop and host Michael Lerner. It's almost as if they tell us more truths, we will die. But they want us to live. They want us to live into the, the deeper trust that we can work out the moral certainty to go to the 100% trust that they're real. Because then, like, information will make us feel, I have something. And then it doesn't last unless there's a relationship with them. And, oh, the list is long of those personalities that we know in history that I've met on Pancho Villa, a lot of Native American elders. Some of them, I don't even know their names. Young Cloudy, 
I search every record to see who is Young Cloudy. No such name and recorded, but Credamut was elder, came to me in Los Angeles. And the, the protocol is when we're working with certain things, if you ask their names, they, are to, they have to tell you. So there's a protocol to communicate with the initiated dead, those who actually understand that they're dead and their role in the realm of the dead. And they don't give you anything unless you know the protocol. That what? Unless you know the protocol. So could you say what the protocol is? Again, in the heart. You must be, you must want a relationship with them in the heart. to be true from the heart. But, but you, so yes. what are the steps of the protocol? You experience yes. this, this yes. person. I mean, it's yes. a very important question, actually. <laughs> uh, what are yeah. the steps of the protocol? To not be afraid. To not be afraid. Because your mind is going to be altered. Mm-hmm. Your perception of things will change. Mm-hmm. You will feel your own disembodiment. Mm-hmm. And then you have to be willing to be a being that is not just body and mind. Because they'll elevate the energy we call our soul. They peel away our perception until we feel a deeper awareness of who we are. So they're giving light, astrality. And the astral process reveals other levels of communications that we often can't get to unless there is that level of support. We call initiation support or imaginative support. And then the encounter would be, who are you? Because it's an important question for the stage in which they are, even if you recognize their unique identity, the question is, who are you? Because they have evolved since they've left the physical body. And they're in service of something in another realm that could support ours, but ours is not the priority. The priority is the truthfulness that they live in and have their being. We are, you know, we're the ones who have to ask what is really real for you in this sense. Because like to say, this is the reality, oh, they will laugh at you. Like that is nothing. <laughs> and like that can change at any time and you'll be right here with me. We have, we're hanging on by a thread in this physical space. It can be altered at any time. And our interaction with them is for the purpose of refining our own feeling, which again comes back to the heart, etheric body. Can I truly mature my interest in immortality? Not the dead, immortality, which means it's right here now. In the being that we are, there are even physical selves that are immortal. When they die, they dissolve into light. They don't dissolve into matter. We have 
immortality in our physical spaces of life. When that gets activated, the communication between realities gets more operative. And we realize that I am not just the body that I present as. But to cultivate it, to cultivate that body for the work with the other realm is part of my practice. And so this body was being prepared to deal with that reality since around seven years old. And so I'm a host for their, their reality far more than this one. And so when um, Kredamutwa's elders came, the um, ceremonial guides that we were in asked the protocol, who are you? And he said, I'm not going to tell you. I'm only going to give you the first letters of the name. And so um, he mentioned it. And so I took the, took the first three letters and I called South Africa and told Baba Mutwa what had happened. And he said, this is the happiest day of my life. And I said, well, why so? He said, for such a high elder to come to you, meaning that it is time. And he said, well, what did he tell you? He said, well, he told me he was just here to give me something that he had before he died. And again, Credo started. There's, there's a kind of laugh he does, which is like all the way in the belly, you know. That this, this reveals a communication that hasn't happened for a long time. So he told me the full name, and I'm not, all, I'm not able to repeat it because the work hasn't, I have not gone to fulfill certain things there. But this was one who kept, he was a high priest to King Shaka of the Zulu nation. And part of his work was to carry and structure the collective consciousness of the entire continent of Africa. He would run from one country to the next through the astral belt, just move like the animals do in their migration, but at the speed which he could appear in all the countries, at all the shrines, whenever he wanted. His heart was the hut for the star wisdom. For any time in the world, he could initiate those for seeing. What this planet's mysteries are about. And what still has to be recovered by creating what we're talking about, a moral center for communicating with our dead and the realm where these other spirits have their being. Even the mineral realm, it's, it's so misunderstood what crystals are and gold and diamond. These things are only to concentrate the will. They have no other, they don't want to be anything else jewelry at all, they don't want to do. 
even if we wear certain jewelry, it's to concentrate the will, to be recognized as an initiated one. It's not idolatry in the way of the mind, that I'm special because I have bling. No, it's, it's to authenticate the protocol when you encounter some being who said, who give that to you? And you have to name the person who put that necklace on you. We, we live in a very different structure of intelligence, of what is real and what is not, and what to pursue and what not to pursue. Even to some degree, what to eat and what not to eat, because they need access to your energy body. So, you've spoken of, first of all, thank you. Thank you. That's a, a deep and profoundly useful elucidation of your experience of the world of the dead. Um, and not only the experience of the world of the dead, but your description of the immortality that lives within us right now. Uh, and um, the calling to live from our hearts and the calling to a deep morality, um, which, by the way, I have to say out of honesty, I think I fail in that deep morality all the time. I just want to say that. In other words, I'm very aware that um, I always describe myself as a radically imperfect human being with a few useful skills. That's my self-description, all right? But I mean it. Yeah, yeah, I mean yeah. it. And what I yeah. mean by that is that, that the, I am very aware of the light that comes through me. But um, my, one of my teachers, an important one, Swami Satchidananda, used to say that Gold, to be useful, has to be mixed with base metals in order to be strong enough to be shaped, all right? And so I'm very aware of uh, the base metals that make up part of my being. And what has enabled me to do commonweal and to hold the work um, is not only the light, but also uh, the earth qualities, right? Um, and so I'm, I'm an earthy human being mm -hmm. as well as, uh, you know, mm -hmm. receiving light. But um, I was schooled in, uh, I, or perhaps schooled is the wrong word, but I really understand not only love, I understand power. And I worked with power all my life. Yes. I've worked with power and wealth. You know, these have been building blocks for Commonweal. And the ability to dance with power and wealth yeah. is part of what, and not, it's not some beautiful aspect of me. It's just part of the gift that I received that was enabled the light coming down and yes. then the earth elements or whatever you want to call them of this earthy human being. And so I was able to hold, you know, the realities of uh, of the challenges of yeah. working in this world at this time and the incredible delicacy of the dance in this incredibly polarized mm -hmm. period of time mm -hmm. of 
at least in my view, keeping Commonweal true to a mission that is transpolitical. You know, yes. I could yeah. talk about yeah. all of that. But the point is that in order to do those things, I feel that I operate often uh, from a place that is below who I would be if I surrendered it all and just said, you know, I'm just going to be with the light. At this point in my mm -hmm. life, I'm just going to be with the light. You know, mm -hmm. and people have suggested that to me. You know, yeah. you've done enough. I had a friend, a friend of ours, who gave me a reading from the Akashic Record, and he said, you've completed almost all your, your contracts, mm -hmm. and you, you can stop doing, you can just be, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think about that, and I think, okay, that's his point of view, and he's an <laughs> elegant, wonderful human being, and I appreciate it deeply. Yet, mm -hmm. I feel I'm here to serve. Right. And I feel I'm here to serve as long as I'm useful, and I actually would rather die in the harness of useful work than um, perfect myself mm -hmm. by surrendering the need uh, to do real work in this mm -hmm. world. So mm -hmm. I'm asking, yeah. since you know me and wish me well, <laughs> I'm, I'm asking your counsel. I mean, you mm -hmm. know, not that I'll do what you suggest, but I'm <laughs> some careful thought. <laughs> You know, it's um, this conversation space is a part of a bigger reality yes. that we right. share. Right. Because when you and when we did the, the spiritual biography, we were not just talking. No. We were entering into the yes. field that we're talking about. And you have made an important. Um, you have been an important guide in the exploration of that edge of power. Mm -hmm. Because the way you read the book yesterday as well, you cognize factors that only a developed mind can do. When is a developed, developed for power? Because there are other people interested in this book. And they still ask, are there things, are there codes, are there things hidden? And yes, there are many codes in the book. But not hidden. They're right there. You'd have to learn to read. How do you read a book that is when nothing is there? For me, nothing is here. Nothing. If I concentrate here, my mind goes somewhere else. And I could write what I didn't write before, or read what I knew wasn't prepared yet to be said. You are like that in your mind. You have prepared a lot of things that hasn't yet happened for Commonweal for the community in which your work has been organized to. Because, you know, some of us feel like it'll be more believable when more people come to know that reality. But I think, I think people will believe you of what you really know about the future. 
because we're 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 you know you 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 know the the and, and this is a critical thing about about those I'm talking about power is not it's really what levels of understanding we could reach with the collective knowledge that we know exists in the world. I mean, you could have a discourse with almost anyone at any level. What does that mean? That's what Pythagoras prepared. Pythagoras prepared your mind Hmm. that you're using now, that we all are mostly using to structure discourses about power in the world. The Pythagorean theorem is never, could never be exhausted when it comes to deciphering the symbolic power of inquiry. The questions you ask does not just go to the mind. It crosses these other boundaries because your own immortality is struggling to find its place now. That's true. That's true, and I struggle with it every day. Right, and we all do. That's that's initiation, but you're consciously initiating yourself at a pace in which you could be useful to the culture, that they don't say, here's this weird old man, you know, just running around thinking that he could make magic happen. But weird was a initiatory space for a person. Michael Mead introduced this to us some years back. It meant having one foot in this world and one foot in the other world. At a certain age, we have to do that because the power is maturing to put us more into the other world than this one. Mm-hmm. And, and when that world becomes more real to, to, to us at a certain age as elders, in, in a way, you could literally make people understand more things than lives in the culture. You know, um, one of my experiences of the spiritual teachers I've known, and I've known some extraordinary ones, is that when you get to know them well enough, you discover they are also human. And typically, they hide their humanity. In other words, what they give you is the projection of their light. Mm. But they tend to hide their humanity. And I've always, I've never wanted to be a spiritual teacher. Mm -hmm. I don't consider myself one. You know, I've really actively rejected projections of that kind because I experience myself as a radically imperfect human being with a few useful skills. And I prefer that persona Mm -hmm. to the persona of the guru because the guru or the teacher is going to disappoint you at a certain point. They're going to disappoint you. Their humanity will leak out in some way. Whereas if you say to people, look, I'm just me, you know, I'm I'm useful, Mm -hmm. you know, I I do experience the living Christ, the energy, whatever you call it, Krishna, Buddha, uh, Christ, Mm -hmm. uh, whatever, you know, uh, spontaneous co-arising, whatever you want to call it. I do experience that. Yes. I do experience myself as a vessel of that. But to me, the extraordinary thing is not that that energy comes through us because we're perfect. It's because it comes through us because we're imperfect. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yes. as Dame Edith Sitwell said of William Blake, she yeah. said, he was cracked, but it was through the crack that the light yeah. came. Yes. Right. Yeah. And then Leonard Cohen borrowed that line. You know, he was cracked, but it was through the crack that Mm -hmm. the light came. That's my experience of myself. It's like I get to be fully human in this world. 
you know, with all my faults and all my blemishes. And yet the miracle is that I am permitted to be useful. So the mortality, the mortality and the, the everyday sense of self is actually really important, as you shared. In initiatory wisdom is not to be perfect, it's to be disciplined. Aha. Uh-huh. Discipline is when do you know the altering of consciousness will happen? Aha. Uh-huh. And then you shift your responsibility to that. And so you can move in and out of these you, different consciousnesses. Because there that's it, everything is an altered is right. Yeah. They don't want you in that perfect state uh-huh. all the time. You can't really be right. in that discipline. You know, it, it is, okay, because one, you have to preserve the physical mm-hmm. integrity of right. the life itself. And that means, okay, I'm tired, leave me alone. I don't want another assignment. You know, I don't want to hear about the mysteries today. <laughs> you know, and it's not, you know, they, they, they really appreciate the honesty of, honest feedback. That people are not ready for another download, so let us not do that today. It's a dialogue. The entire cosmos is a dialogue. And what matures in it is their understanding of how far you can go with what they give. And they trust that part. Not so much asking for more and more and more, and then you see that it's actually causing harm. So the imperfection is actually important. Mm. That's very helpful. So let's come back to this question. You've said, actually, while you've been here and in personal conversations we've had, that the last few years and even the last few months have been a time of, of great opening for you. Yeah. Could you describe the opening? Well, I struggle with what we call the pandemic. Um, in, the, in the medical model of what emerged in it, to identify a pathogen um, and a response to that in a way that actually was dumbing down the collective knowledge that we have about viruses and about life. Went back to a very old model of healthcare, more than 40 years back (laughs) in the design. We had matured the awareness in science and practice that um, even how we treat a person who was infected could be done differently. There were so many power moves in it that I think the culture did not get the support to come to a place of a deeper agreement around our own collective well-being. So with my experience and knowledge in, in medicine and science, I, I, I saw where the gaps were, but also that there were um, treatment modalities that had come so far in making it possible to be immune to this process. 
I'm particularly interested in this because I have been tracking COVID very carefully for years. A squirrely little website that I mm-hmm. developed called COVID Strategies, where I post all the time, including a lot of stuff on integrative medicine. So I'm particularly interested in your statement that there, I I would love to explore what your recommendations would be uh, for people to develop uh, immunity, uh, whether relative or complete. And I absolutely believe we can do that. And I have many friends in integrative and functional and intuitive Mm -hmm. medicine who do that work. Mm So I'm particularly curious, since we've talked about medicine in the past, what are your recommendations for developing um, uh, resilience? So we're now moving from biological medicine and science to cognitive medicine and science. Okay, well, I'd like you to take it wherever you'd like to take it. In other words... Uh, I don't want to. I don't want my yes. question to yes. deflect you from where you're going. So where, where science is now, it's yeah. a cognitive state because yes, we can sure. prove one thing or next based on right. the cognitive model right. we use. Right. right. So whether it's a wave or a particle, the the, the physics saying there it's both. Now the critical thing is whose intention reveals the appropriate use of the collective knowledge. Because this is really where the, the, the mind, as we practice science of the mind, the belief is not useful anymore. To just believe something is, is not helpful. The, the inquiry now is, how do we know we know? How to experience the knower, and can the knower move itself, its will, its cognition, to a higher level, where we don't know. So this is a creative act. All artists goes to where I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm doing it. It's an intuitive level. So the intuitive plane now where where different pedagogies must go, have to overcome the tendency to manipulate consciousness only to serve the power interest or the Mm -hmm. self-interest of being a knower of something. The, 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 The science within the construct of our contemporary um, power dynamics is actually causing harm. So I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in what you're saying, that when I began to ask you about where you are now, and you said you've been very uh, deeply taken with the, with the uh, pandemic, uh, where it takes you. I've just said where it takes yes. me. So it, it, it takes me to the, uh, the end of resilience. What, what practice did the world choose, given the fact that we had to separate from all of the normal factors of our lives? And it came into our discourse last night, how many people died that we didn't even get a chance to honor in grief and memorials. 
but did it become acceptable that that many people can die and then we can just go back to being doing what we do? This was really for me the big, the big question. To make that scale of dying normal is a big problem. That no one held accountable for how many people lost their lives. This is, if this was a war, you know, a war, there will be people looking for war crimes and all kinds of stuff because of the impact of the very culture in which dying happened. We lost significant parts of our culture. And not only that, there is a huge excess of deaths beyond those right. that are accounted for. Right. A huge excess of deaths. So uh, for me, that I, I, I wanted to make sure I understand that this is not to be normalized. No. And that people would just accept distancing from the, the sensitivity forces yeah. that are maturing our interest to create another level of awareness and well-being by moving to the collective superconscious. Beautiful. And this is, the, so the pandemic gave us both, like anything, when something is lost, something else comes in. And what's coming in is the fact that we could, in a way, experience a closer connection to each other. Well, it's there. That's beautiful and important. Yeah. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Orlin Bishop and host Michael Lerner. Okay, so that's one of the things you've been reflecting on. And let me just say, I've really deeply heard that we can't normalize the losses, not only the deaths, but the diminishment of so many people, the diminishment of healthy young people, of, you know, just the diminishment is extraordinary. The deaths are only sort of the tip of the iceberg. Yes. And here we have this thing, whether man-caused or natural, mm-hmm. where it's been handled terribly badly, mm-hmm. um, and it's with us. Yes. And your point, which I think is so powerful, and actually in all the time I've been thinking about this, I haven't allowed this to come in deeply, but it fits completely with our cancer work and everything else, is that here is this immense global wound And this wound is not only a wound, but it's an opening. Mm -hmm. And it's potentially an opening to the superconscious. Mm -hmm. So how do we pursue the opening to the superconscious that the wound of the pandemic offers us? Right. So this, um, there's some basic truths about, about moving the everyday awareness to the superconscious imaginative level. One is, I mentioned it yesterday into one of the questions, acceptance of invisible guidance. That the maturing of our, of, of our consciousness is to experience energy in motion within, within our own observation of things. So when I'm looking at something, it's also changing. But it's not that the thing is changing, my mind is changing. 
So this is really what's happening now in, in, in the culture that our, our mental structure that held the world fixed is in a movement because the planet is generating a certain kind of magnetism for the mind to change with it. Anyone resists will become like a fundamentalist or something. You know, it, it hardens the will because something wants to change. So the planet is initiating a shift in the mental models of the world. Secondly, we accept, as I said, immortality. And immortality is the light, the way energy works within the human being. Energy moves from a greater concentration to lesser concentration. We know that in basic science. Where is the greatest concentration of energy for the human being? Outside of the body. The human, the human being is mostly outside of this body. And we have not developed our science to support living that way. We have meditation practices. We have other cognitive disciplines that allow that we call chi to be understood that it's, it's everywhere, but it's also part how the body works, the meridians. We, we interact with free energy all the time. Now developing ways to put it into, into functionality is what we call the, 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 the immortal cells the light cells, the mitochondria, generates for us. Um, and it's, it's willed more by intention. But how do we get to the level of intention for something that we don't know is we know each other. And we have to strengthen each other by choosing to communicate very differently. Rather than doubting that we could know, we ask, what is your evidence that something is changing? What, like, tell me, what do you experience in waking? That because we don't share it, it falls back into the unconscious. All the time it falls back. We don't wake up and practice shifting the world to this higher valence. So immortality is not, a law, it's not living long, is living deeply and connecting to the source of what makes this body function. Free energy makes this body function, not the foods we eat. That helps to create the right chemistry to open the meridians to communicate and the neurotransmitters to communicate. But we are, we are an energetic being. We need these minerals, we need vegetable, we need animal protein to coordinate information. But we can also coordinate that information with our own awareness and a deeper level. It's been 5,000 years of Chinese meridian theory that if you put a needle here, you get more energy than if you put food in your mouth. We know that to be true. What's coming up for people as you listen? I know this is sometimes dense, uh -huh. so I apologize for the density, which... Um, is what it is. But what thoughts, reflections, questions are coming up for you? Yes, please. The change in consciousness, the fact that 
a lot of our foundations and a lot of our religions have already given us a very prophetic um, ways of being and teaching us prayer, meditation, and all of the movements that go along with those because I think those are the foundation for the changes in consciousness that we are going to be experiencing. Mm. Would, would that be true? Yes. Um, and, that, and that's what I think of as you all are talking, yeah. you know, and they're just so fundamental and we kind of overlook them because they're just little things, prayer, meditation, but they are the key to changing us. Mm-hmm. And then the dream work that you all are doing, I mean, <laughs> that we were talking about, is like so fundamental too. You know, because that's also a change of consciousness. We're looking, we're meeting different spirits. We're meeting different beings in the dream world. All the things that we just kind of look down on, but are so basic. Those are going to be our keys for survival. Okay, that's it. Thank you. <laughs> Do you have a comment on that, Earl? Not in a moment, if you don't, yeah. please. Right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And I deeply agree. Yes, I agree. I mean, prayer. Well, would you talk a little about prayer? Okay. The, the, the organize what what we what we ask for has to go through a process of asking. Where does the prayer start? In perception, right? I know something has changed. I don't know what or how I'm going to be changed because of it, and so. Prayer is, is actually a, a, a response to look into the invisible for direction, for, for integration. We know that when something in perception changes deeply, it's opening to something else to come. So we don't even really have to pray. We're in the prayer. The body is a prayer. The body says, I'm here, and energy from everywhere comes to it. The prayer was a refining of the appropriate timing for what you receive from the cosmos, from their ancestors. It was a ceremonial ordering of something that will be a natural epigenetic process. We, because we don't think prayer all the time, we have to do prayer sometimes. But people live within an order for a long time that this is a prayer. It's happening and we're interacting with beings who are actually praying that we'll pay attention to what they can give us. We are not the best at praying. Well, I would say there are beings on the other side of most of our realities that actually are praying that we pay attention <laughs> to this miracle of life. You know, the, I love the Sufi Islamic vision that our prayers go up to the imaginal world and they are met by the messengers or angels that come down seeking to contact us and it's in the realm of the imaginal that our prayers come up and the angels come down or the messengers come down. 
Does that coincide with your experience? Yes. And and Meister Eckhart put it, the, the, the eyes through which I see God are the same eyes through which God sees me. Yes, beautiful. In a way that sense perception has come out of wisdom. Mm-hmm. It's not to separate us. It's to actually unite us with a larger reality. Mm-hmm. But because of the different levels of initiation that has happened in different civilizations, we now have to re-engage with our free will to put the body back into the order of mm-hmm. life. Because the body fell out of it to individuate the willpower to be able to know some things about the mysteries. It's not a mistake that we arrive at a time in the world like this. But we did not accept all the gifts that came along with evolution of consciousness. We've got to been further along in meeting our time. Other reflections? Yes, Catherine. Roland, as we go deeper listening to you and trying to absorb and understand, um, could you say something about what this is not, right? So all of us have studied other systems of understanding spiritual systems, religious systems, psychological systems. And one of the things I find myself doing is trying to relate what you're saying in some way to what I already know. Um, You know, you've used words like mystery. You've used the word God occasionally. Um, And so you're talking about what it is. Can you say what it Maybe what it is not, or can you can you help me relate to yes. theology as I might have known it otherwise? Yes, appreciate the question. What this is not is another religion, or even another science. This is really about our inheritance. This space between us is an inheritance. It requires that I host you and you host me in a way, in a way in which another kind of communication will emerge. It's prepared in us, but we have to give it freely. We have been um, acculturated to want, on my knowledge, to work for something in the world. This is where the knowledge is actually working. Not for the world, but for the human being to exit the world that holds us in prison. It's to overcome our sense perception that the world is finished. I'm saying the world is not finished. And there's no knowledge that has reached the full potential of the world. And no religion that have replaced the deities that created the religion. So we believe in the religion, but not the deities that govern them. Because we are the religion. 
Let me say it again. We are their religion. And they're praying for us to do the best with being human because it fulfills something that only gods could use. Gods want our bodies and minds to reflect their capacities, not our self-interests. We are their religion, and they are praying for us to become something that only gods can use. Yes. Our will. Our free will. How, why, why, why we say at a certain point it's free? Because energy follows thoughts. I could choose thoughts and then my energy goes with it. It can go against reality or with reality. And so I'm saying what, this is really still about energy. And energy and a way that we all can have a personal experience of what I'm thinking. And why? And from there, ask, can my thinking evolve to a, a level in which I could witness the higher purpose of it? The higher purpose of my own thinking. I could observe it because it's, it's not finished because I believe something. And is that the same as Steiner saying uh, thought as a spiritual path? As a productivity, yeah. yes. And again, his vision, which sounds to me the same as yours, was that the, the dead and, and the divine forces come, can come to us as thoughts, right? And therefore our thinking can begin to reflect the prayers of the divine and those working for our good on the other side to come into us as our own thoughts, which then can guide our experience and reality. Right. And even the flower. Yes. It, so it can be, it can be as simple as, as a stone, yeah. a flower, the river. Everything communicates mm -hmm. the intention to enhance human perception. Mm. Like we are given so much grace by nature mm. and cosmos to be able to internalize our will. Meaning that the will should not be unconscious to the degree in which I just walk on something and not know why mm -hmm. or need something and don't know why. Other questions, <clears throat> reflections? Yes, please. Orland, as you talk about initiation, one of the first things you mentioned was fear and that being this energy that must kind of, as I interpreted it, not be present in order for initiation to occur. And yet there is so much fear that lives, I feel, in individuals collectively as well and in order for us as a collective and for each of us in our own inheritance to step through um, these initiations, what do we do about the fear? How do we 
be in right relationship with that. And I'm also reminded of love and love and fear in some understandings being kind of the antithesis of, of one another. And I just wonder how you would, um, yeah, bring that into the heart. <laughs> yeah. And I think it appreciate the question much to complete an issue. So we, like we've been in an initiated initiation circle for a long time. The civilization been in it for hundreds of years. What brings an initiation to completion is creating community to share your experiences. We need a global sharing of our experiences to the degree in which we know that when we do it, certain things um, in the alchemical processes of the mind, the fear is, I don't want to repeat this or I don't want to be exposed to this by myself. The critical step that I'm pointing to um, in all I'm saying is love is a communal space in which we receive from each other the confirmation that the initiation is complete. We don't have to repeat this world over and over and over. People keep selling us insurance for this world. It's not going to work. <laughs> right? The assurance is that when I know someone else's energy release my mind, what Angela was sharing earlier, the healing circles. It, we don't talk about the problems of the world to the degree that they're in the way because the hospitality, when it reaches the sacred level, it invites what the world is actually creating. Creation starts again. And the creative mind becomes active again. But we need to do it enough to be supported, to shift the chemistry that is already fearful. So our body's gotten used to this substance. And we have to transform it. And it takes us like three years for the chemistry of life itself in the body to come into community. But it has to be consistent. Any practice for three years changes the chemistry of the body. And the fear dynamics, if that is really what we're trying to transform. So when I began to ask you about your work now, and, and you began reflecting on, on the pandemic, and we reached some kind of, not completion, but expression of that. But how does, how does that fit into the broader situation you find yourself in. This is the 40th year after you came to the United States. You've described how you're having new experiences of um, who you are and what your work is. Can you say more about that? Yeah, thanks. The, 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 mysteries, the mysteries, as I have been... Um, initiated to work with them. It's coming through, or what people refer to as the veil getting thin. It's, it's a reality. What happens if someone crosses so far in an altered state that this reality no longer works for them? Mm -hmm. 
And the, the solution for many is you give them a medication that just keeps them not trying to make mm-hmm. anything different. But I go after the people. I, I, I project my mind into the orbit of their mind, wherever they might be, and find the communication appropriate to bring them back into mutual agreements that this is a real space we share. So you go into their minds and find the way to help bring them back into agreement. Yes. And some people do it it must by, by the fact that seeing me, they follow me back here. Mm-hmm. So my, 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 I'm not trying to pursue any futures outside of the fact that if I'm committed to being a host, those creative impulses will come to me. But it will come to anyone. And the, 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 the work is you create a sacred hospitality for people who have been on the edge for too long Mm -hmm. to help them reunite with their own inner sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. And the justice that they're looking for is a host, Mm -hmm. someone who understands. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm trying to understand is not the personality, not the identity that people often want to, is the core principle of the humanity. At the center of the human being is faith, mm-hmm. an enduring effort to be here, to, to, to integrate all of the complexities and opportunities and fulfill something mm-hmm. where the earth actually hosts mm-hmm. as, a, as a kind of energy. The word commonweal actually means the well-being of the whole community. That's what it means. Mm. It's it's Mm. signification. Mm -hmm. And I've always thought that the community called commonweal, the organization within the community, uh, will be of service for as long as it's true to uh, the intention of the word for which it's named. You have been gracious enough to be with us often in our journey here at Commonweal. What do you see about the nature of this community and its mission and destiny that could help us stay true to our true intention? Mm-hmm. Stay true, keep doing what you're doing. I mean, here's uh, here's the opportunity is that we don't just produce things, we create beings as well. Mm. From this place, the beings that accompanied us here will go back out into the world. This has a lot to do with understanding even our climate. What is it that we co-create when we have a shared space, a shared imagination, a shared intention, a shared purpose? a higher shared purpose, we create beings that actually energetically stabilize the communal sense of our connectedness in the world. So the event that happens here gets distributed elsewhere. The event is not a mental 
reality alone. It's not just an emotional reality alone. It's an ecological reality as well. And the, the challenge of even while cautioning the ideas about the pandemic is that we have to keep the awareness that two or more human beings together create our environment. It, like I'm, I'm, I'm advocating that a human being has a role to play in other spheres of our planetary integrity. And if we go back to the earlier myths, even as far into the Greek culture, in, in the Sanskrit culture, in Egyptian and Chinese culture, the core principles of most of the practice is a large environment. Right. It's a larger environment. Yeah. It's not just what people do in their day-to-day lives. Mythology is an extension into other realms where where we um, prepare some things before they come into manifestation. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Orland Bishop and host Michael Lerner. So if we're waiting for something to happen, that's the problem. We're waiting for it to happen. We have to go into the realms where it's happening and could happen in a more precise way because we are participating. This is, I'm saying that the human human thought isn't spiritual activity mm-hmm. that support beings to organize their collective intelligence towards world creation. And we've dedicated more of our thinking to creating things rather than an ecology of relationships with other intelligences. Mm. And that is really all I'm pointing to, an ecology in consciousness and nature. So a lot of the people in the Commonweal community who, uh, at least many of us gathered here, resonate profoundly with what you're saying. And in our daily lives, we find ourselves besieged with emails, webinars, uh, phone calls, um, just working young people with families, older people, working almost to the edge of exhaustion. And meanwhile, this world that you're describing beckons to us. And at the same time, in our efforts to do good, we exhaust ourselves with our engagement with these technologies. And here we are in this moment, not seeing a way out. Mm-hmm. What would you suggest? <laughs> you just answer the question, just suspend some of it for a little while. So, the technology is actually an artifact of our dispelled emotional life. Mm. It's our own astral bodies that we're interacting with. Mm. Right? Electricity, magnetism, and light is best organized through sense perception, not through technology. We can elevate our communications to the degree in which we do what these supercomputers do. 
intuitively. This is where no supercomputer can go to the intuitive realm. Mm. Absolutely not. Right? It cannot create. It can only assimilate. Mm. And it's assimilating mostly our collective unconscious. We know all these things, we just don't share it the way the computer does. Just as you said, Catherine, we have all of these religions, we have all of this knowledge, but it's mine. The computer doesn't say that. But so push that key and I'll give it back to you. Where are our keys? What are our sacred keys to say? How do I give back to us what all of our ancestors have been accumulating in a higher reality of intelligence for so long? It is far more elegant than the computer. These elders that I've been can project a hologram of our collective dreams and we can watch it, just like we watch a movie, concentrating the astral projections we make for, for next week and next month, all that is astrality. There's nothing like tomorrow. It doesn't exist. It's astral projection. And what happens, we organize it to happen in a certain way because everybody wants to play the game of tomorrow. We've convinced each other of a whole lot of things that are not true. There is no tomorrow. There's eternity, all the time, every day. <laughs> and we could enter it and make a better tomorrow from it. If we choose, it's a ritual, like all rituals. Tomorrow is a ritual. Why only make it 24 hours? And why make it so scarce that we do, don't do anything with it? We've calendar failure for the next 25 years. Because we're not committed to doing anything that we write in our calendars to the degree that we show up for the person to not be burnt out. Really host them. It's really what I'm committed to. I'm, Committed to no more wasting of life for the purpose of accumulating more awards of some kind. Stanley Wu, you've been <laughs> listening to this. Let's see Stan if we can get Stanley a <laughs> microphone. I know. He's been... <laughs> <laughs> this conversation speaks to me. <laughs> Um, I mean, first of all, just deep gratitude. And I think gratitude doesn't really capture the sentiment, but I think it conveys it. And gratitude, because I feel like even before this stream in this conversation, perhaps maybe a little while earlier today or yesterday or last night, I can't remember, I was feeling like I had received a profound gift from this conversation. And that gift is an invitation to seek something 
so much deeper than what I sit with every day and every month and perhaps even every year. It's an invitation to seek my purpose, who I am. It's an invitation to see others more clearly and to see myself more clearly. It's an invitation to see my ancestors and to an invitation to see my dead. And ultimately inspires me, I think, to live better, to work better, and perhaps may also allow me to serve better. Mm-hmm. Where that's going to lead, I don't really know. But I just want to say thank you for this gift, and for your time, and for this community. Could you pass that mic over to Christine here? I'd just love to hear what's going on for you. <laughs> if I can find words. Um, you said something really powerful that's been resonating, which is to speak the changes we're noticing so that they can, they don't fall back into the subconscious, but they actually rise to then populate and go, wow, this is where we are now. It isn't the, it isn't the same thing. Um, and then I began to think about the, uh, as like I channel a language and it's taught me a lot about language. And one thing it shows me is that sometimes if we don't have words to explain an experience, like that English can't hold the experiencing, the experience I'm having, I, I let it fall away and act as if it, it, it isn't a being, if that makes any sense. Um, and so we're also being called to find language for things that English can't hold because they're also part of this reality. And what is it to do that? I think it's why what you're saying feels so dense because you're trying to find words in the English language to actually encapsulate things that don't exist in the cosmology that created that language. And so a part of me is going, oh, wow, what is it to even begin to create spaces where we constantly are reflecting on the new experience so we're able to elevate and evolve at a rapid, more rapid pace simply by being present to what is emerging? Are you willing or able to respond in the language that you channel to the experience here? Okay, let me sit. で、で、ちょ、こんにちは。ジニイティアオマダ。じゃあ、おしいティアノ、こんばんは、おたわて。やうしゅしゅわのがろたおてんなだおし。ばえにイティアオジ、アンシイディアタオエンやた。そういうんでいちゃうどえなとかじゃあねめあじゃおせなでてぺえじゃんでいしいちゃうどねえきあにじゃあさばどあいていにゃでぺしいちゃうのえいいたおごなあえべえてえちゃおてねかあついちゃう
Ebeje. What is your experience when you just did that with us? What does it evoke in language that you can share with us? Um, I feel a being come to... Oh, it's it's complex to connect. This being is speaking from an ultra consciousness, if that makes sense, and it's bringing in layers to speak to something ancient in us, like in the DNA level, that knows exactly what it's saying via feeling it, like the cells know, and it's not meant to be cog. It's meant to be felt and then and then let it become because it doesn't it it's so much information, you know, uh, that I can because of the way I've the cosmology of growing up in the United States is so limited, it's so hard for me to hold the levels of information it's giving. I can't always uh yeah. Uh, share it, if that makes sense. Thank you. Orland, as you listen to Christine's um, offering, uh, what was your experience? I, it's, the description is exactly what I experience, even speaking English. It's not my preferred language. Mm-hmm. I don't have a language what I cognize, mm-hmm. so I have to speak it in English. I could observe it, uh, what it could do, but we're not in the acceptances quite strongly for what the stars will speak. For some says, and uh, one of Steiner's is that um, verses is that the stars had gone silent because they allowed us to evolve evolve our languages for the purpose of preparing an age in which when other languages come, we will actually understand them. But there's so many more languages to come. This is only the ones we speak of mostly to just prepare us. Mm. There are cognitive states that are not only languages, but pure pictures. Pure phenomena, phenomena, noumena, you know, it's, they just give you to do. It goes to your will. It goes to your understanding without any interpretation. Mm. Yeah. But it's, um, I listen to it and trust the speaker. Mm. You know, it's not like I say, I don't understand you. I trust the speaker who's speaking. Yeah. To build an understanding, we trust the speaker. Most times, I don't understand even what I say. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I speak it because I have to make sure it comes into reality. And then hopefully there are people who trust me to say, what did you say? And clarify it. Like we can go back and forth. But it's not because I said it, because you heard it. So the critical thing about hearing a language is that it makes the language more possible to be spoken again and again and again. 
As we come to the end of this session, and then we have one remaining, yeah, thank, and thank you, you so thank much, you so Christine. Much. Um, are there any reflections that you would like to end this session with? Is there any anything coming to you that would be a proper completion of mm -hmm. this third conversation? Yeah, I want to thank you for sharing your, your gifts. Mm. Because... Um, it's, it's not often people share that they have a capacity to really understand power mm -hmm. and do it in such a way that you can host such a space with others and distribute that power in an intelligence that supports the, the complex work of holding mm -hmm. what Commonweal holds, the ecologies that Commonweal carries. So I, I'm, I'm really grateful that, um, because people who in, who interested in work with power don't discuss it in public. That's right. And there must be a discourse level about power, a public discourse level mm -hmm. about power. Who has it and why, and who are misusing it and why, or even the who needs it and why. Because mm -hmm. there are certain people are destined to be powerful in the relationship to this construct we call, you know, our world. And they must know what to know about power. Well, power interests me, as you may know. And, um, and my experience of power is that it's very subtle. I can walk into a room and within a relatively short period of time, I can see the geometry of the power in the room. I'm sure other yeah. people can do that, but I can see the geometry of the power in the room. But interestingly, it is far from always about formal power or wealth or fame or the ability to get people or things to do. There are many subtle forms of power. Um, uh, my colleague and friend Rachel Naomi Remen said that she much preferred influence to power. And that's an interesting observation. Um, I think there are many forms, uh, without over-genderizing it, of both masculine and feminine dimensions of ourselves that have different forms of power. So to me, power is immensely subtle, and it has to do with um, concentrations of energy, often in very quiet people um, who are touching what's happening in different ways. So I would say in the Commonweal community, there are quite a few people that would not self-identify as, quote, having power, who nonetheless have great power. Um, and so when, when I speak of power, I'm not speaking of formal power. Uh, actually, I find that many people who hold formal power don't have much power, you know. I'm talking about the energetic flow of what creates community and what 
expresses when deep earth energy and light energy come together through the heart through a will that has been surrendered to the divine. That's what I'm really talking about. Yeah, I yeah. get it, yes. And I, I, I would add, in, in my practice, we nurture power. Yes. So it's not to influence it either to the degree that it goes and do something that is not in its best interests as such, but also that in the collect in the ecologies of consciousness, as you describe, the arts and sciences as we have been using them in our civilization, have other levels of of um, evolution to go through. So imagine what what it could be to integrate again the mysteries, the greater mysteries, into the collective knowledge of all the religions, of all the sciences, of all the philosophies. There's something else that we have not yet done, is agree to the higher purpose of that, mm-hmm. higher shared purpose of it. Mm-hmm. Because the intellect has only known its personal pursuit of power to the to this most um, and it's really what how we are educated to perceive it. Our knowledge is for us to become more powerful. And I, I take deep interest in the subtle spaces where someone with mental illness has more knowledge mm-hmm. in their experience, in which they can cross over into someone else's thought line because there's no doubt about their capacity mm. to communicate. And they share what we think. And because we don't listen, we don't hear that they're sharing what I'm thinking. We want them to think normally. And my one of my most, like when I go to the psychiatric ward I used to do, well, they will gather around me like a indaba, because they will, they love to read my mind, <laughs> because they get it. It's outside of the boundaries of the of the particular culture, mm-hmm. and the, I mean the, the psychiatrist is like, why are they always circling you? Because they read my mind. They do it elegantly. Maybe the universities will start trying that. Let's go into quiet for a moment. Peace, peace. Thank you again for this community, the quality of the attention and intention. I want to thank Orrin Slosberg for his leadership of Commonweal. It brings tears to my eyes to have found um, uh, someone to carry the work on uh, of such um, beauty and gifts and skills and and to have brought us together here. I just want to thank you. Thanks, Orlin. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Orlin Bishop and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kira Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. 
Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening. Water, I feel home. Water can heal my body.